do me a favor, though, and think with me uh, about times you've heard David defeats Goliath to describe something. I remember when it was a Friday night and we used to play indoor soccer where we planted a church in Pennsylvania. About 40 guys got together and we said, bring your friends and we're going to play in this indoor facility. Afterwards, we go out and have, have wings and just hang out, have fun. And I remember being in a local Pennsylvania bar not far from Lehigh University, uh, like a restaurant, wings restaurant, having a blast with some guys. And we realized Lehigh is a 15 seed and they're going to defeat Duke tonight. I remember that day like it was yesterday because we were right there in Bethlehem area of Pennsylvania where Lehigh University is. And it was said, David defeats Goliath. The, the 15 seed defeated the two seed. And you think through other examples of that where that's the descriptor. And it's true outside of sports too, right? You've got uh, a very well-known, super-financed incumbent for some political office gets defeated by a no-name, non-funded newcomer. And you hear it said, David defeats Goliath. It's kind of the stuff of revolutions, isn't it? Where the, the weak overthrows the strong. I want to read to you a quote uh, that I read quite a while ago, but it stuck with me. Uh, the late Ivan Illich, he was an Austrian philosopher, a cultural critic, a uh, Catholic priest. He was once asked, what's the most revolutionary way to change society? And the question asker said, is it violent revolution? Or is it gradual reform? What's the better way? And here's what Elitch said. He said, it's neither. If you want to change society, then you must first tell an alternative story. It's not about whether it's violent and sudden or it's gradual. First, you must tell an alternative story. So before a revolution ever happens of any kind, that revolutions begun to happen in the heart of the revolutionaries who are starting to tell a different story. And that's ultimately what we have in this text. We know David shows up on the scene and he has a different narrative that's pulsing through his heart. He sees and, 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 and is living according to a different story and we're about to see what it is and what it causes him to do is interpret all the facts differently than every other person in the story. So I want to say something about that before we pray and jump into the passage. I want you to understand with me that we do not do anything based on facts alone. We do not do anything based on data inputs. We do things based on our interpretation of the facts. We do things based on our interpretation of the data. That's the importance of the story or grid that we live in. I, I did something on social media this week. It was kind of funny. Didn't expect to mention it in a sermon, but... Um, Tuesday night, I uh, was injured, and I was still in more pain than I am now, and I came home, and Corey said, you know, basically, we're going to have ribs tonight. We don't ever do ribs. Fantastic. Wet ribs, not dry ribs, but she can do some good dry ribs too, right? But what was amazing to me is I looked over, she's sitting in front of our stove, legs crossed, staring at the oven. It looked like a child who was like looking at a, at a you know fish tank or something like that, right? Just, just mesmerized. And I looked at Megan, I was like, take a picture of that. That's adorable. Send it to our college age daughter. She's like, that's the cutest thing I've ever seen. I throw it on social media. Probably shouldn't have. Don't do that, Jim, especially. Take a picture of your wife and then put it on social media. I just said, this is a beauty. This is home to me. And I, what other interpretation could you have? It's beautiful to me. And yet somebody chimed in 
and said, I don't think that's a very endearing position to put your wife in. She's worked so hard, she's slaved, and she's now sitting on the floor in the middle of the kitchen exhausted. She didn't quite say that in her post, but it's an old friend. Didn't expect to be in my sermon this Sunday, may or may not listen to this. I was like, are you kidding me? What's, that's not the narrative in our household. It's beautiful. It's special. But that's the power of interpretation. You think it's beautiful when you've worked your wife to death and she's laying sprawled across the kitchen floor. It's the power of interpretation. So I want you to understand with me what we need desperately is to see that David shows up on the scene. He has a totally different interpretation than any other Israelites that's there, there, particularly Saul. And I think the thing that hits me hardest this morning is you and I, we need a radically different alternative story that we see in this text from what our culture tells us when they say David defeats Goliath. And so we're going to enter into that. So let me just pray and we will jump in. Father, help us to see the revolutionary nature of what you're doing in the heart of David and the revolutionary nature of this text. When we see it inside of its context with the meaning you've placed in it, would we see the gospel? Would we see your champion? Would we not see ourselves in the center, but we see your champion that you put in the position to be the victor when slavery was on the line? Help us to see the gospel and to see Jesus in this. That's our prayer this morning. In Christ's name, amen. To that end, read a commentator this week. He said this. He said, if we don't listen to the text, then we'll end up bringing in all the junk about being courageous in the face of our Goliaths. Be careful what you bring into a text. All right. So before I enter into the story with you, I want you to know something that might have struck you as odd. This almost seems out of chronology to chapter 16. Pastor Bill preached it last week. David's anointed. We know who he is. But the weirdest thing happens in chapter 17 where Goliath, excuse me, Saul doesn't seem to know who David is, does he? But if we looked at what Pastor Bill preached last week at the end of chapter 16, David's actually already been introduced to Saul. He is inside the house of Saul. He's playing the lyre to calm the tormented Saul. And Saul actually sees him as being such a strong character, a man of valor, a man that the Lord is with, that Saul has already made David his armor bearer. But then we come to chapter 17 and Saul doesn't seem to know who David is. So what I would like for you just to think through is there may be a situation here where literarily the author, under God's inspiration, put chapter 16 before chapter 17. But chronologically, we may have what happens in chapter 17 occur before chapter 16. Now, why would that be? And I think it's this. It's so that we as readers, when we come to this chapter, we know exactly who David is. And that will change the way we understand the text. We know that he is the Lord's anointed. He is the next one on assignment from God. And he is on the ascent. He's the man after the Lord's heart. All right. So we know that as the reader before we come to this chapter. Doesn't have to be chronologically swapped, but it does make sense of it. So picture this with me. You got two mountains, two hills, and there's a valley in between. And on each side, we have the reality that there's a champion. Now, of course, we know in verse 4 and following that the champion of the Philistines, his name is Goliath of Gad. He's gargantuan. And he comes out two times a day, every day, 40 days straight to taunt the Israelites. And his essential taunt is this. Where's your champion that I can fight him? Choose among yourselves the champion that you want to fight me. And if you defeat me, then we will be your slaves. If I defeat you, 
and your champion, then you will be our slaves. This would happen twice a day, 40 days straight. I want you to imagine with me how this should strike the Israelite army. Just the words, choose for yourselves. Doesn't that have meaning in this book already? Like, shouldn't you have an Israelite sitting there on the front line saying, well, we kind of already did that. Back in chapter 8, the people said, we want a king that will lead us, and particularly chapter 8, verse 19, we want a king that will go out before us and fight our battles. So that's chapter 8, verse 19. We want to choose one that will go in front of us and fight for us. So this should be obvious to the Israelites. Who's the champion supposed to be on the other hill? Saul. Saul is unwilling to come down 40 days straight of this taunting. Saul's not stupid from an earthly grid by which he lives. It would not end well for him, would it? And just think about this description of Goliath that we have here. None of the valiant men who'd attached themselves to Saul thought it would be a good idea to volunteer to be the champion. Saul says, I'm not going to volunteer. The way the the biblical narrative describes him from verse 5 to verse 7, we are basically given a picture of what has been, you know, translated into about 126 pounds worth of armor only that this man wore. 126 pounds. Just the tip of his spear, like a 16-pound bowling ball. It's just unbelievable the description the text has. This is the Philistine champion who would every day step forward and just imagine his tiny little armor bearer guy weighed down by all of the armor going with him every single day. Do we have to do this again? Like, you're fine. You don't need me. Verse 11, all of the Israelites, every time they heard his voice, cowered in fear. Twice a day, they wet themselves. And then verse 12, now David, the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem, named Jesse, the youngest of eight sons, skipped back and forth from his father's sheep to see his older three brothers who were among the frightened army. And, and we have a particular day pulled out for us. This is the day that Jesse gave him not just food for his brother, but I love the detail here. Here's some cheeses for the commanders. Take them to your, your brother's commanders. It reminds me of my mom. Uh, she was always bringing snacks to the games. And I don't mean when I was like a little kid. I was a college soccer player. <laughs> college soccer player. And Nancy Powell would show up with her trunk full of pop. Because we grew up in Colorado. We called it pop. And my friends made fun of me. But it was like a trunk loaded. It was like super cool. Because my buddies love to have Nancy Powell show up. But I was in college, right? And I mean, we don't eat orange slices, mom. Like, it's a totally different experience now. This is Jesse. Just David, keep go check on your brothers for me. And on this particular day, here's some cheeses for the commanders. And on that day of delivery, David gets curious. He goes, it seems, the narrative says, he goes clearer and further than he ever had before. So he leaves his supplies with the keeper of the baggage. He ran to see Eliab, Abinadab, and Shammah. Verse 23, David heard him. Whenever you see a short, truncated sentence in a narrative, just sometimes it's good to just weigh in it, weigh into it. David heard him. He heard the same taunt that had been given for 40 days straight. And then verse 24, David saw all of the men of Israel run very much afraid. This boy, you picture him, we don't have his question here, but like, why are you guys running? And verse 25, they look back and I'm like, have you seen this guy? 
This is an application of what Bill preached last week, by the way. Chapter 16, verse 7. Don't look on outward appearances. The Lord doesn't look on outward appearance. Man does. That applies to looking for the, the golden child, the anointed one, but it also applies in looking at the enemy. And so David essentially says, who is this guy that he would defy the army of the living God? What's going to be done for the one who stops this reproach? That word reproach in the Hebrew is in this chapter six times. So it means reproach. It can also mean um, uh, to deride, to mock. And what I'd love for you to see with me is that these are David's first words in the whole Bible. And David's first words reveal to all of us reading the Bible that he has a totally different narrative going on inside of his heart. Same facts, same words heard by others, the same champion, the same threat. He understands the same cost, and yet he responds completely different. It frustrated his older brother, Eliab. I love this scene. You know, the older brother looks at his little, little brother and is like, get out of here. Don't you have some sheep to tend? Like, who, who'd you leave your few little sheep with? Get out of here. And the response of David is great, just like a little brother. What did I do now? Can't I even talk? I mean, it's just like my house, right? And then Eliab turns to his peers and just his stupid little brother. But they heard him. And we read that the word gets back to Saul. And it's just a tr tremendous scene. The rejected king... Ask for David, the one that we as readers, because we've already read chapter 16, we know he's the new anointed. And Saul specifically says, bring that one to me because we need to have a conversation about what he said about how to defeat the champion. This is unbelievable. Gets even crazier, verse 32. David's so confident. <laughs> he looks to Saul the king and he says, let no man's heart be afraid because of this guy. I'll fight the Philistine. I think the wildest part of the whole chapter is that Saul lets him. Okay. Like, you don't look like you can do it, but okay. Like, your joints are bigger than your legs. But if you think you got this, yeah, I don't know. I mean, he's kind of a massive guy, but in the end, he says, okay. That's crazy. Now, why does he say okay, though? You have to picture maybe a little teenage bravado. He's had some experiences, but it's like David says, can I tell you about my awesomeness? Like, the way, just read it, verse 34 and following. Your servant kept sheep for his father, and a lion or a bear would come and take a lamb from my flock, and I would go after him and strike him, and I would take my lamb back. And then, if he didn't like that, and that bear or that lion rose up against me, I'd just grab him by the beard, and we'd throw down, and I would kill him. This uncircumcised Philistine, He's defied the armies of the living God. It will go the same for him. Okay. Saul says. But he, he kind of just says, well, hey, hold on, wait first. Here, put my armor on. I don't need it. It's not doing me any good. Saul has such an earthly grid, doesn't he? First of all, he sees the Goliath for what Goliath is, a nine-foot-tall human. Then he's afraid, and he only knows to handle it with an earthly grid. So he decides, I'll offer a nice monetary incentive to whoever will kill him for me. Earthly grid meets earthly grid. David steps forward and says, I'll take care of it. Goliath says, well, here, first, you need to wear the same thing he's wearing. Earthly grid. That's the way he sees the story. 
Well, we know the armor doesn't fit. David doesn't want it, so he grabs his staff, the stones, and his slings, and he just steps out into the valley. And I know you know this story, but it's just... The reason we read the whole thing again is we're called as a church to commit ourselves to the public reading of the word. Jesus says in Luke 24, it all points to me. So it's worthy of me not summarizing it for you, but let's hear it again. And did you just see and hear it differently where Goliath says, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? I'm going to feed you to the birds of the air. Isn't it great when David turns around and says, no, actually, I'm going to feed all y'all to the birds and the beasts. Goliath, in verse 43, curses David by his God. Did you hear that part when it was read? Question, who's his God? The God of Philistia. We've met that God. His name is Dagon. We met him in chapter 5. And Dagon has been glued back together because Dagon was formerly headless and handless. And now Goliath uses the name Dagon to curse David's, David's God. The whole scene is just... Astounding, but we read at first that David was cursed by Goliath. How does David interpret that curse? Listen to this, verse 45. David said, you come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin. I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. David doesn't take it personally. David's not the one that's being defied. It is God. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I'll strike you down and cut off your head. I'll give the dead bodies of all the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the field. This is how it's going to happen. See, because my Lord doesn't save with sword or spear, and this battle is the Lord's. I want you to notice with me that in this chapter, David says the same thing to three different audiences. Just note that. He first says something to his brothers, then he says something to the king, and now he says something to the enemy, and it's the same thing every, thing, every single time. At that point, David, out in the middle of the field, sees that Goliath launches at him, verse 49, he puts his hand in his bag, he takes out one stone, he slings it, and it's just like Hebrew poetry here. He hit the Philistine in the forehead, the stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. It's like poetry. David just drops him. There's no sword in the hand of David. So he borrows Goliath's sword, takes it, and he decapitates him just like Dagon had been decapitated in the temple in chapter 5. And so I, just thinking about this and trying to get excited about it and realizing the passion we should have for this, let me just ask you, do you feel anything this morning? Do you, do you believe the Lord gives strength for his people to fight our foes? I want you to think about your foes, those who mock you in your faith. Great evangelism class right before service today. What happens when people mock us when we are sharing with them the good news of one God, three persons, the creator being the redeemer? Think of the mockery that we ought to sustain in our faith. Think of your circumstances. We live in an imperfect world where there's a lot of need for righteous resolution. Things are not right. There's injustice. There's need for God to do something. Think about what you face that you could never fix. Think about stuff that goes on inside of here. Think about sin struggles and addictions and the impossible battles you face. Here's the question. Do you believe the Lord gives you strength like David to fight giant things in your life? With faith, with strength and courage you can't have on your own. Do you believe that? Now, here's the trick. We do believe that, but I want you to listen carefully. That is not the way we're called to interpret this story. It's not untrue. 
And I say it in such a way as to try to help you think through it. But I want to convey to you this morning, that's the old story. That's the old interpretation. And what we need is a new interpretation than the plethora of children's stories and sermons and studies that have made the David Goliath story become a cultural theme. That story puts you and me in the center of it. And we need an alternative story. Generation after generation, I know you've seen this with me, Christian after Christian, meme after meme, we need to stop repackaging the old story with us at the center of it. God helps me fight my battles for his good and for his glory. That's still the wrong narrative. I have a quote there in your bulletin from Paul Tripp. I was once listening to him talk and he said this, sin causes me to shrink my world down to the size of my world. I orient around my, my needs, my struggles, and I want to be obedient, but I'm still orienting around me. That's the wrong narrative. In fact, let's be very sober about it. If we handle this text that way, do you know who we sound like? Saul. Saul was in the center of his own story. And when he cowered in fear, what did he try to do? Incentivize someone else to step forward in faith at the center of their story. And then we do a hop, skip, and a jump, and then we tend to put ourselves there. That's not the story in this text, and I'll show you that in a moment. Another quote I put in your bulletin. I read this week that there was a time in the life of Oswald Chambers, the great devotional writer. He was facing some form of internal cynicism as to his struggles. And he stood up in the middle of a prayer meeting, and he says, either Christianity is a fraud, or I've got a hold of the wrong end of the stick. If we take the story of the glory of God, the promise of God, the faithfulness of God in a world where there is an enemy to God and his people and we shrink it down to ourselves, then we're basically grabbing the wrong end of the stick and there's no power there. And so what I want us to do is kind of our transition even to the Lord's Supper, but please think with me about a new and alternative story that we must have that David has in this story. It's ultimately this. You and I, as believers, as disciples of Jesus, as Christians, we're not fighting an enemy we hope to defeat. We get to plunder an enemy that God has already defeated and God chose to do it by the champion he put out in the middle when we would be too afraid to fight. We're not like David at all in this story. And that's a critical thing for us to think about. I kind of knew what the children would say in the children's sermon when I said, what's the best part? What's your favorite part? In other words, I'm saying to them, if you did a literary analysis of this story, what's the climax? And the children are like, oh, it's when the stone hit Goliath in the forehead. That's awesome. I know. And David, why did he have five stones for the stored fight? Well, because he was prepared. Yeah, that's awesome. And he was humble. That's awesome. Folks, that's not the moment for David. That's not the height of, of turning in the story, the climax, the, the moment of turning is when David the anointed shows up and by his words, David declares to everybody that he's God's champion and he clarifies for anyone who will listen who's actually the one that's going to do the fighting. Who is it? It's the Lord. The battle's the Lord's. The enemy that's being defied is the living God. The Lord saves. I come to you in the name of the Lord. He says that to anyone who hears it, and he does all of that convicted declaration before he loads his weapon. 
David doesn't say, the Lord helps me fight my battles. David doesn't say, Lord, I promise I'll tithe back to you 10% of whatever Saul gives me. David's mind's not on himself at all. He's not at the center of his story. It's who the Lord is and what the Lord has promised. That changes the story. See, what happens if you and I kind of have the old interpretation as our reading of this story? Who do we parallel in the story? We parallel David, right? And if we do that, one of two things can happen. Either we moralize the story because we realize we're not going to be that great. We don't have that much courage. So we failed. Or we become Christian motivational speakers. Just try to encourage everybody to fight really hard and, and don't worry about your weaknesses. Folks, none of us are God's choice champion to fight the enemy that's taunting God's people with slavery on the line. Isn't that good news? You're not the one fighting in that regard. So if we don't parallel David in the story, then who might we be when we read a story like this? I propose to you that you and I are like the cowering Israelite army. We're sitting there and we're terrified. Who's going to fight for us? Like how long is it going to last? At what point are they going to realize we have no champion? I'm not strong enough. The people I go to church with aren't strong enough. At what point do we realize that not just us, but our family back home are about to be slaves? I'll go even further. There's a person whose name comes up a few times in this narrative that I relate most to. His name is Eliab, the oldest brother of David. And sadly, he reminds me a lot of Christians I've met where we're pretty unaware of how afraid we are and unwilling to do anything. But when somebody else shows up and smacks their mouth, we are really quick to put them back in their place and say, you just, just go back to doing your thing. Eliab boasts, he's grumpy to another Israelite, and it's just lost on him that he can't do anything either. See, the only, the only application for David in this story is that the Bible points way beyond who David is and shows us the champion that God put on the throne of David to reign forever and ever, and his name is Jesus. David is God's beloved, his rescuing anointed, and there's only one that that could possibly be. And so as we are going to take the Lord's Supper, we're going to end in worship. I, I sit here before you, and I just want you to understand, the whole Bible has told us there'd be one that would step forward and crush the head of the serpent. Genesis 3.15, it was going to be Jesus. There's only one who stepped forward into the middle of all humanity who, who we, being born in Adam, are enslaved to both original sin and our actual sin. And one step forward who was not a slave to sin, who did not sin, who was righteous. And then he went beyond just being righteous. He bore the curse for the unrighteous. Such that the Bible tells us that all who are hidden in him, that have him in front of them, are considered righteous in God's sight. There's only one champion. And the gospel's on display in the chapter, isn't it, when we really realize that what was, on, what was at stake if Goliath defeated Saul or David? What was at stake? Slavery. What does the whole New Testament tell us about what Jesus has done for us? How about Romans 6? If we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order to, that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who's died has been set free from sin. 
So Christ is the champion who defeated an enemy far greater than Goliath, which is the prince of this world, who seeks to destroy the people of God and enslave us in our sin. And we have a gospel that tells us the champion that God set in front of us has been victorious. So what does that change for us? It means when you and I join in the fight, we're not trying to defeat an enemy. We're plundering an enemy already defeated, and that's where this chapter ends. So yeah, it may feel like we fight like crazy every day because God hasn't determined the end coming yet when Jesus reigns and there's no more fighting. But we fight as those who plunder an enemy that's defeated. We don't fight just to save ourselves from slavery to sin. That's a huge difference. Let me ask you, as you get up every day and you know what you're going to battle, do you fight to not sin? Do you fight to not be a slave to it? Or do you realize you're not a slave to it, so therefore you fight to advance the kingdom of God and plunder the enemy? What would plundering look like? And this is where I'm going to close this up. I have been, it's a mess. My notes are a mess. I'm a mess this week. Everything's been messed up. It's great to be back in this building and have a little bit of normalcy. But let me tell you, I've just been mostly messed up thinking, what does it look like to plunder the enemy? What does it look like for Christ Community Church to plunder the enemy? For your family to plunder the enemy because sin has been defeated. What does that look like? Maybe plundering looks like speaking the word of truth in a moment to ourselves and to our family and to our enemies before we do anything. Do you do that? Where you say the battle's the Lord's. It's not me who has to fight today. I get up this morning and I turn to God's word of truth and ask his law to be imprinted on my heart, his gospel to be imprinted in my heart, and I plan to go speak it today. That's what David does. That's what, what we get to do with God's people who are plundering the enemy. Maybe plundering looks like having purpose when you get up. It looks like not being aimlessly busy. It looks like plundering your family's calendar and saying, we're going to have a different drive and purpose and way of analyzing what we should spend our time and our money on. Maybe plundering looks like not just trying not to sin, but going to work and in your business, you are going to be one who represents a God of all creativity and glory. And you are also going to be the first to repent when you have found yourself to not have integrity or to have anger or to not know how to navigate a relationship. You're going to be the first to show a different way unto your work culture changing because you're there. And this could be said for education or in civil realms, wherever you are. I think plundering looks like not responding to conflict the way the world wants us to. Just cancel that person. No, I think plundering looks like saying, I'll bear the burden of your offense against me because God bore my burden and doesn't hold it against me. So I'll forgive you. You mean 70 times, seven times someone who hates you? Yeah. I think that's plundering the enemy who wants us to be so distracted by our anger at other people that we wouldn't even believe the gospel. I think plundering looks like this room being full. Like us gathering to do the most important thing we could do is worship God through Jesus' righteousness. I think plundering looks like being convinced and convicted that you have the Holy Spirit in you. You're supposed to tell people about Jesus. I'm supposed to tell people about Jesus. And it may be a person you've been in a relationship for a long time and you just haven't had the courage to do it. Or you turn it into a debate where you just got mad. You didn't have the humility of Jesus. 
or we're upstairs having an evangelism class and we're actually talking about what would it look like if we go talk to people who are in this city to tell them about Jesus because we believe that Jesus is going to come back to earth and judge and wipe out those who've rejected him and create a new heavens and a new earth that's beautiful. And so we want to love people well by just telling them the hope that we have. I think that looks like plundering the earth. I could go on. It's just a mess in my heart, in my head. And since I don't know what time I'm supposed to stop preaching because we changed our service time, I just keep going. <laughs> Let me just say this. What's the most revolutionary way to change society? Is it violent revolution or gradual reform? I think it starts by telling an alternative story. And I would just ask you, what's the story you tell yourself? Are you at the center of it? And what you're afraid of is at the center of it? Or is your creator and your redeemer with all of these laws and promises that call us to be otherworldly people, citizens of a different kingdom? Is that your story? We have a champion who stepped out into the land of sin and he defeated the enemy. So slavery is not on the line anymore. And so would God give us the ability to live in freedom and how we relate to one another in the world around us? Let me pray. Father, th <coughs> thank you for Jesus, our champion. Thank you for this really long, very detailed account in the Old Testament that points us to your way of rescue, that you would set one to fight our battle for us and one to be victorious and one to rescue us from slavery and one to guarantee victory. And would we now in this day see ourselves as those who plunder a world that's rejected you until the day that you come and you reign? But would we not fight just to, to stop feeling slavery? Would we not fight to just not sin? Would we fight to advance your kingdom as sinners who've been set free? And in all the, um, the vague applications of that, individualized in this room, would you be glorified as we talk to the little kids about it this morning? Would we believe these things? Would we bring a different narrative into one another's lives when we have such an earthy grid? Would you be glorified to add to our number daily those you are saving by the champion, those you're sanctifying by the champion, and the way we see the champion's kingdom impacting the world around us? That's our prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.